Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, the treasure trove of RPG interviews that sits at the end of the long, dark dungeon of your week. I am the dragon which sits upon the treasure trove, none other than Ryan Howard. And folks, we have a banger of an episode this week. We are talking to none other than Hankerin Fernell of the Runehammer YouTube channel, the creator of the Index Card RPG, and all around just a, a really cool guy. We had a really great conversation. I, I'm really looking forward to, to this interview. Uh, before we get to that, though, just a couple of quick plugs. Um, I've gotten my physical copy of Broadsword Magazine. Uh, this thing really is awesome. Guys, I, it really, it's, it's like an actual 5th edition book. It's not like a soft cover magazine. It's like a, it's a, you can probably hear that. That, that is me knocking on the cover of the book. It is a hardcover book, and it, it really is something special. I am really excited about the finished product. I'm really looking forward to issue number two. As always, DM Dave, you knocked it out of the park, and... If you are interested in getting Broadsword Magazine after my review, after after hearing me knock on the cover of that book, uh, I have an affiliates link which you can find in the uh, in the episode notes. And I also want to throw out some promotion towards the Knights and Nerds podcast. Uh, those those guys are like my family over there. They they really are great. And uh, coming up not too terribly long from now. Uh, Tim is actually going to be releasing the campaign planning episode that he and I recorded together. I am stoked about that. I am, I am really looking forward to hearing how that turned out. And it is, it's going to be awesome. He and I recorded like two hours of content over two days. It, it really is going to be a great episode. And of course, I want to push you guys towards our guest stuff. Not only does he have his YouTube channel which, uh, just look up Runehammer on YouTube, but you can also go to runehammer.online to find out more about his RPG. All of his books are available on DriveThruRPG. Just look up Runehammer Games on there, and you can find everything. Uh, he is on Twitter and Instagram as well, and, uh, all in all, it was a, it was a great talk. It was a whole lot of fun. I, I want to have him on the show again, because a lot of his stuff is very focused on mechanics of D&D, that's kind of where I fail as a dungeon master is with mechanical stuff. I'd love to have him on the show again just to, to talk about stuff like that. We talk about D&D, we talk about RPGs, we talk about Black Sabbath. That's going to be great. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this week on Rollin' Bones, Hanker and Fernell of Runehammer. I hope you all enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 
As promised, uh, we have on the show right now the uh, the founder of the Rune Hammer channel on YouTube, the creator of the Index Card RPG, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Hank Renfernail. Hey, wait, I don't hear any cheering. <laughs> <laughs> We need to insert some virtual cheering, I suppose. We'll add it in post. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Good to be here. Now, now, Hankerin, I just, I have to ask you, I, I don't usually ask people this, but I have to ask you because you famously have hosted a show called Drunkens and Dragons. What, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> I think I'm going to be vilified across the planet because I am enjoying a White Claw seltzer right oh, now. I am, I am part of the problem. <laughs> I'm part of the problem. I actually just was on a, a week-long road trip living in a van, mm -hmm. and doing that, I uh, acquired a certain affinity for this stupidly popular beverage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so trendy. <laughs> I've got I've got a nice glass of uh, Chattanooga bourbon here. So. Oh, see, that's that's a man's beverage. That's a that's a grown ass <laughs> man's beverage. None of this silly stuff. Hankerin, I'm going to ask you these questions that I ask everyone, and uh, just fair warning for my audience, I've added a new one. So we're, <laughs> we'll be testing this one out on you, but I think it's a good question. Okay, great. I'm, I think I'm ready. I feel ready. Gotcha. Awesome. So, how did you get into RPGs? Um, well, I think in the early 80s, um, when they were considered really kind of creepy and scary, uh, at that time, about 1981, I was interested in everything that was creepy and scary. So mm -hmm. it was, for me, it was just a matter of reaching D&D. &D. So for me, it began really with horror movies more so. And by linkage that I can't quite put into words, horror movies basically led me to discover tabletop role-playing. So then I sort of uh, lurked around in the shadows for a while, finding out what D&D was. But at that time, I saw it something like only adults were allowed to do. And so slowly I lurked in the background and collected some of the early books, like the, the sort of first edition and then uh, AD&D books, but never really knew what to do. And then when I discovered GURPS, uh, for whatever reason, that made my brain click and I made the transition from being a sort of a lurker into creating a game, telling my friends and like running my first game. I was probably 14 at that point. So that would be 87. So, so once we did that one, and that was a cyberpunk setting where we were all like super modified assassins. Mm -hmm. And once I did that, then I've been doing it continuously ever since. So it's just been a matter of uh, how frequently in that 30 some years I can actually get a group together. <laughs> gotcha. Now, in your time as a player, uh, can you think of maybe what your favorite system of all time would be? Whew, that's tough. Well, I've always been, you know, a, re a supreme hacker. I, you know, I think everybody sort of knows that about me now. So if there's anything I don't credit, it's definitely in the background of me crediting it. Like, I think lately people are thinking maybe that I'm like, I dislike Pathfinder or something, but I have been sneaking stuff out of Pathfinder since basically since it came out. I've been a big fan of them. But as far as just like systems go, I would probably have to say GURPS. It's the one that probably changed me the most. It showed me the sort of the wizard behind the curtain in a way. Now it has some crazy stuff in it, like, you know, SDC and all this kind of wacky and like mm -hmm. crazy lists of advantages and flaws and all stuff that's somewhat out of style nowadays. But I have to credit it because it's the one that unlocked my imagination. I'm with 
with first edition, I felt so confused and scared. I mean, I was like nine years old, so that's mm-hmm. something. But but once I discovered GURPS, that all that fear went away. And so I still, in some ways, I think I think in that GURPSy kind of way, it's like that one to eighteen rollover fundamental, and then you mm-hmm. kind of just balance all the rest and try to make it go away. And uh, so I, those books got a little wacky too. There's like something like 400 GURPS books. So like it, it kind of flew wildly out of control. So it's a little hard to pick as a favorite, but mechanically speaking, I think that's probably the one that has informed me the most over the years. Yeah, GURPS definitely has some crazy stuff for it. I, I think it's GURPS that has a Cthulhu punk book. <laughs> yeah, they have like almost all these, all the mashups you can kind of conjure up. And then any little sort of genre fiction corner of the world, they somehow would get the rights to that and make mm-hmm. that. So there's, you know, John Carter GURPS and there's, you know, Jane Eyre GURPS. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like there's a book for everything, Yep. <laughs> which I don't like that philosophy. I like letting mm-hmm. the players kind of make all their own worlds. But that first GURPS book, it was like GURPS Basic, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. That one just like blew my mind up. I like just for a week, I was like seeing my life ahead of me. I was like freaking out about it. Nobody even knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Seems like everyone I have on the show who who makes RPGs and makes content centered around RPGs is the permanent DM. But can you remember the first character that you got to play? The first one that I probably really invested in, you know, instead of just sort of playing for maybe a night or something to to screw (laughs) around, was a character called Otterman. And uh, Otterman was a character that I played in um, TMNT Mutants Down Under. And um, he was half otter, half man. And he had like a shotgun and a katana and goggles, you know, <laughs> like, and I, I think his flaw was something like doesn't trust humans. <laughs> and, and we basically played the, um, the Turtles in Time storyline where the turtles go back to dinosaur times and they, you know, shredders goofing around and all that stuff. And, and I do remember that feeling of like wanting to see what becomes of Otter Man. You know, it's not just <laughs> this is a cool character, but you're actually wondering like, you know, is he going to wind up with like kids or is, is he going to be, you know, like dead in an alley somewhere in like a fictional city? You know, like, what's going to happen to Otter Man? I remember that feeling and really giving a damn about Otter Man, but I don't think we ever even finished the damn campaign. But that was probably about 88 or so. So describe for me your play style, both as a player and as a GM. Oh, man. Well, as a player, I have a very hard time playing outside my, who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess maybe just because I'm like not an actor in any way. So I have a really hard time doing anything that's sort of nasty or, or nihilistic. And, and my co-players will be chuckling right now because they know how I agonize over certain decisions that we have to make in play. And like, I take this sort of moral burden upon myself. And I would like to think that I'm kind of a good guy in real life. And I always wind up being a good guy as a player. So uh, there's that. And then my other thing is that I try to be like the fastest player at the table. That's kind of like one of my, my fetishes is like being completely ready on my turn and like just banging it out in a, if possible in a few seconds mm-hmm. and moving on so that everybody else can kind of do all their stuff. So I hope that I succeed at that. I'm also like too critical as a player, like always after the session, I'm always like, you know, <laughs> I think those, we probably could have made the rats more dangerous and they could have mm-hmm. jumped off that thing and that would have made it crazy. I do a lot of that kind of thinking because game designer. As a GM, what's my style? Um, whew, That's a tough one. What's my style? Well, I'm definitely known for a little bit of like um, pushing, you know, I'm sort of a, a pusher GM, uh, meaning like I I tend to give very little quarter to the players. I, I am somewhat known for that. 
but I think also I, I can't deny that I'm a bit of a like a lighthearted GM. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time doing like a monster voice or like, you know, acting out Strahd in an authentic way. Like mm-hmm. I can't do that stuff. I just, for some reason, if I'm like alone recording like an audio story, I can do all these cool voices, but at the table, I just got to come clean. I like, I'll say something, you know, like, well, Strahd looks really sad to you. Okay. So what are you going to do with your turn? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just kind of, let's just move past the part where I act for you guys. Mm-hmm. So I've never been a good like voice actor GM, but always have been a very mechanical GM. So I think it's a little bit what I'm known for at this point is like making very 4E style gameplay. And so I know 4E maybe has a little bit of a shadow over it. Um, people thought it was inspired by video games, but I, I was a professional video game maker for 20 years. So for me, that that meshing felt really good. And still looking back at 4E, I still think those books really spoke to me and I loved how they were written and it got such a such a bad reaction that was kind of sad to me. So very mechanical, lighthearted kind of GM. I think that's sort of my style. See, I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I love doing voices. I love role playing and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And in our group, um, uh, Joe is is our sort of local voice actor, <laughs> and and it's just endlessly entertaining too. Which is why I I have to point out that I suck at it because when when I have a, a GM that's doing it, it's just it's amazing. Especially when the NPCs are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And you get into that hilarious, you know, um, what's it called? Splinter? Was that the new movie with the guy with all the personalities? Split. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, Split. Yeah. It's like <laughs> that, where he's like walking in the room in different outfits, you know? Yep. It's so funny, but I could just, I never, for some reason, that just falls apart when I try to do it. Hankerin, can you think of, in all your time playing, your fondest RPG memory? Fondest RPG memory. Oh, man. Well, you know, I, I, it's it's a little bit like music. I think a lot of great things have happened since my sort of younger years. Mm-hmm. There's been so much that's happened and it's been great, but sometimes the things that happen to you, you know, when you're in, you know, like 17-ish or so, even if they weren't that great, like nostalgia makes them magical, you know? And I okay. and I think I have one of those. It was playing Palladium Fantasy Hero. Uh, our DM was a guy who had gone off to the Marines and he was off of his deployment or something. And so he was back for like six months and the rest of us still hadn't quite graduated high school. So he was older and kind of cooler and smarter and he ran our game and we played twice a week since his, uh, his time off duty was kind of short. Yep. So for one thing, we had that intensity that was so crazy that it's really hard to do as an adult, you know, but also I think why it's my fondest memory is (laughs) he was really, really good at like effects on us that lasted. And and what I mean by that is like, we each had these scars and these sort of stories and flaws and interrelationships that were really like sticking. They didn't kind of vaporize between sessions, you know, like mm-hmm. um, in my case, I had this sort of cloven hoof sword. And ever since I picked it up, I couldn't put it down and I was slowly becoming a goat. Mm-hmm. And instead of that being like comic relief in our group, it was like really sad actually. And it was like this time limit that we had on this adventure because there was no way to reverse it. And once I went goat, I was going to forget my friends and like, I was going to have the mind of a goat. So I was going to lose all these memories and like we had this really poignant sort of tipping point in the game which was near the end where we're in these big you know dramatic high fantasy stories but I'm starting to like lose it I'm starting to not Mm -hmm. be able to recall facts and like starting to want to kind of go down to start getting on four limbs Mm -hmm. and like starting to lose my humanity and stuff and there was definitely a moment there at that table that night that was like honestly 
straight up sad that, that my character was going to befall this fate. And like, there was a feeling of wanting to rally around it and like push and try to get to the end before I couldn't even appreciate the end. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that was just one of those things that makes you say, man, I want to do this hobby for the rest of forever. This is, this is mm-hmm. amazing stuff. And you know, everybody has those stories that's like, it sticks with them for literally decades. Um, and that was mine. But just for fun, I know this is my interview. You're interviewing me, but I want to know yours. So mine... <laughs> it's too fun. I've actually, I've been playing D&D for a relatively short amount of time. I got into D&D when I was in college, uh, right around 2015-ish. And I was very fortunate. I found a group on Reddit and everyone in the group was good people. And we played together for like three years. Nice. We were coming to the conclusion of the game that we'd been playing for the past three years. and. We were basically geared up to fight Tiamat. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Yeah, and and we were all like 20th level characters. We were all super powerful. In my head, I thought, okay, there's no way we can lose this fight. We're we're not going to like trounce Tiamat. It's going to be a fight, but we're going to win. We're going to come out the other side. And we get to the feet of Tiamat. And at that point, the the bard in the party, who my character had had kind of a a tryst with, but that relationship had fractured. Oh, man. Yeah. That bard turns on the rest of the party. And like it turns as a player? On, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> she, tur- she turns on the rest of the party. We had fought a lich at one point. It turns out she took the phylactery and became a lich herself. So she revealed herself to be a lich. And then one of the other party members also turned. And our paladin turned, which ended up being a hilarious story because... His idea was he was going to fake turn. But he had not cleared this plan with his god. Mm-hmm. So his god took his powers away as soon as he turned because he was lawful good. And then you just got a guy. There's just yeah, some so guy just standing like, there. Wait, <laughs> shit. And me and the other people, I was, I was a ranger and then uh, we had a rogue also. So it was the DPS versus a tank who'd lost his tankiness and a bard. And we just wrecked shop. <laughs> And and Tiamat's just kind of over there hanging out. Yeah, Tiamat's just like, oh, this is fun. This is amusing. All five heads are entertained. Yep. But that session, we had a character. So one of our players had switched characters multiple times. So he was, during that session, playing all of the different characters he'd played. And some of his characters had turned and some of them hadn't. So he was like fighting with himself. It was just this this glorious cluster of nonsense. <laughs> I love it. And Only in D&D. Time, at the time, I was legitimately pissed that someone had turned on us. But looking back now, that was the greatest night of D&D ever. <laughs> awesome. So unfortunately, we, we've talked about the highs. Now we have to visit the lows mm-hmm. and talk about an unfortunate person that has haunted every RPG table, that being that guy. So, Hankerin, what is your best or worst that guy story? Oh, that guy. (laughs) (laughs) That guy. Um, Probably my worst that guy. That's pretty tough. Um, Well, it was a basement. It was like a basement-style game. We were Mm -hmm. playing on a ping-pong table that was converted into a big terrain thing. And I was uh, out on the the periphery kind of hanging out with some wargamer types. And I just thought it was really cool because they have all the cool stuff. They have all the, you know, badass little armies and all this cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we were three sessions in. And it it was kind of okay. It felt a little strange to me. But, you know, whatever. It's it's D&D. It's always a little bit strange. 
And uh, for some reason, something snapped. I'm not sure exactly what occurred. And suddenly, there's I think there's four of us. And the, the guy basically decided that he was like running all of our characters. <laughs> it was it was so strange and so surreal that I'm not sure anybody knew what to do. You know, like sometimes at work, you have like really weird situations where you just literally don't know what to do. You're not even mm-hmm. sure you're mad. Yeah. You're just like, you're just outside your social teachings. You're mm-hmm. just like... It, should I like intervene right now or should I just like lean back and watch this happen? Like, what's my role? I actually don't know. And so like in so many of these situations, I kind of went into my safe place, which is I just draw what's happening in the game. So if I get bored at a game or whatever, I wind up just drawing the characters and stuff like that. And then I kind of like go, you know, and it's like two hours later and I kind of look up and I've been drawing and everybody else is just sort of leaning back doing their own thing. And it's basically just this guy talking to the DM. <laughs> and I don't know if they were like best friends from way back in the day. And this is just how they do it or what. But the other two of us are just like, should we just walk out? And the time spent where it was so long not knowing what to do, I think was very formative for me. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it instructed me a lot about like, um, you know, players really love it if they know when to go home, you know, because some, you, I'm sure you've done these D&D sessions where no one wants to be the person who says like, it's time to go home. Yeah. And so it's kind of just keeps going and going. And I was trapped in that vortex for so long. It just seemed like forever. <laughs> and mercifully, that DM finally was like, okay, great session, guys. And we're just like making that weird, you know, like Grover face yeah. where you just want to like Muppet walk out of there. Like, don't move your arms don't talk just kind of like just you know (laughs) cruise off the side of the screen so it wasn't like you know a terrible conflict or any kind of you know like i've heard some terror stories it wasn't like that it was more just like the longest awkward moment of my life (laughs) (laughs) so this is the new question that i have this is the one that i just added in there's lots of things that seem to just come with the territory of playing rpgs some of them are Mm -hmm. good some of them not so good. So, Hankerin, what is your least favorite RPG cliche? Least favorite RPG cliche? Probably that, and it is fading a little bit, but probably that um, RPG hobbyists are an identifiable type. That bugs the hell out of me. You know, like, and not necessarily because I break all the stereotypes. I definitely am part of several of the stereotypes. Yep. But I find it still, even though it's like more popular than ever, and it's it's clearly like a thing that's here to stay, and it's it's not for weirdos and recluses even though i think that's out in the open now it's still weird to people when they find out sort of what i'm into Mm -hmm. and i think it being weird and it being perceived as some kind of fringy bizarro it's probably the thing i i dislike the most i Mm -hmm. i think there are people into a lot weirder things who have a little bit less of a a cross-eyed look when you tell somebody in a bar at one in the morning that you're really (laughs) excited about your 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 D&D game tomorrow night, you get a really <laughs> weird look. Yeah. And and I don't want that. I, I would like a, oh yeah, cool. You know, just like, yeah, I'm restoring a pair of, you know, a set of vintage bagpipes tomorrow night. Oh yeah, cool. Okay. That's not weird either. You know, just like whatever I'm into, you know, collecting plaid pants. Okay, great, man. Whatever. Rock on. So I, I would like that part to go away. Um, and for it to just be another boring thing that nobody's interested in, just another normal hobby. <laughs> And uh, this is going to be the the last question that I ask everyone. Um, 
and this can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Okay. Bankerin, if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, man. Well, you know, I've always fantasized about doing some kind of freaky ass Da Vinci Code puzzle. <laughs> and that's what I want to put on my t-shirt is there's like some kind of freaky tesseract glyph and like the first location to start your journey to find the national your national treasure with Nicolas Cage is like <laughs> hidden it's hidden in the symbol on this t-shirt it's like an eye and a triangle with some mm -hmm. weird lines and it leads you to like you know the tomb of the unknown soldier where you find this coin that unlocks <laughs> a tomb that's under the library of congress or something i've always wanted to create some crazy thing like that mm -hmm. and that's my t-shirt it's the glyph to start off my my worldwide cryptic treasure hunt which leads to a sort of anticlimactic ending like the treasures like fresh water <laughs> there you go that's that's my t-shirt concept <laughs> i mean just some of the answers that i've had in the past um one of my friends said that he would put a fully functioning koi pond on a t-shirt right there you go <laughs> he clearly took some liberties yep <laughs> Luke Hart from the DM layer was so confounded by the question that he said a French fry. Mm, minimalist. Yep. And then Sending my the world a message. <laughs> Absolutely. And then my favorite answer was actually from a previous podcast that I did. It was a music podcast. The lead singer and lead guitarist of a band called Them Evils, a guy named Jordan Griffin, said, mm -hmm. and again, mom, dad, grandma, I know you all listen to the show. I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. But he said what he would put on a t-shirt is play guitar and suck titties. <laughs> Again, sending a message. Yes. <laughs> well, at least he knows what he's into. Absolutely. I noticed in, in kind of going through your back catalog, you have videos going all the way back to 2014, yeah. uh, which which means you're, you're somewhat on the earlier side of uh, RPG YouTubers. So yeah. what was it that made you want to start making RPG content for the internet? Oh, well, it was really, it was a dare. Um, my friends over at Cult Moo, uh, so if, uh, if anybody out there knows about Cult Moo, it's basically a drinking challenge and food challenge show. And um, they were, one of them was a colleague of mine and the other one just a friend. And I found out they were doing this and I was just like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Like, you're going to die doing this. This is crazy. But then they invited me in and I did a couple of these uh, Drink of Destiny shows with them, which is where you spin a wheel and you make these, these drinks out of horrific ingredients. <laughs> and then you have to drink your drink. And so, like, you're drinking, like, squid juice and marinade and, and vodka. You know, it was just a total nightmare. Anyway, so I was seeing them do this and they were actually having fun with it and they were growing. And I was really oblivious to YouTube and, you know, it was always always playing D&D here or there. People knew that about me, just my friends. And then I think we're just drinking at the Black Raven one night uh, down by uh, Redmond, Washington. And they're just like, you know what, dude, you should do some kind of messed up YouTube channel. I was like, yeah, man, I can do drinking challenges. <laughs> <laughs> I got this nailed. And so that's why my channel really was started as a sort of a drinking gag mm -hmm. channel mixed with D&D because that was my plan. I was just going to do all this crazy drinking stuff. But after about a, two months, I realized like I was going to die. <laughs> like 
some of those early streams I did where I drink mm -hmm. like, you know, um, I drink the whole mini keg of Newcastle mm -hmm. in one of them and like review the GMG, you know, and yeah. it's just like all wasted and giving the DMG a bunch <laughs> of grief for no reason. So that stuff is really fun. But man, you do that stuff every week. You just literally start feeling like you're dying. <laughs> yeah. So I needed, I needed to separate the crazy drinking back into my personal life where it belonged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it all kind of started just sets like, in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it just kind of started as like, hey, man, I bet you, you should try it. It'd be fun. And I'll be like, nah, you're crazy. That sounds silly. And I just kind of went for it. Gotcha. And a lot of your content um, or a lot of the content that you're you're kind of known for is helping people build out rooms and kind of the tactical side of D&D. Where did that enter the game for you? Like, where did you start picking up terrain and, and minis and, and stuff like that? Oh, I, I think I learned and got interested in that aspect a long time before I got interested in any other aspect. So gotcha. um, like when I was originally building out games uh, sort of toward the end of the eighties, that's what I was doing. Um, my stories were all just um, basically like missions, almost like, like an XCOM type mindset. Mm -hmm. Like there's a blue box and it's like over there, you're looking right at it. All you have to do is pick it up and leave. That's the extent of the role playing. And then my designs were more about like what it takes to go get that blue box. And that that was where I kind of started. And I think that's why I was a bit of a good fit for video games as well. Like that kind of space limitation and time limitation type uh, structure was really intuitive for me. And then only much later, like maybe in my late 20s, did I start to think like, oh, you know, it'd be cool if there's like a story in this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I think for me, it, it really came first to think about tactics. Mm -hmm. um, even when we were playing Spelljammer in like about 94, um, that's when I was really, I felt like I was doing really well. We we had like almost a team kind of like the Avengers mm -hmm. uh, who had a Spelljammer. And so they had a, a Thanos-like enemy with a sort of enemies like the Shi'ar. And like uh, we were all reading X-Men in high school. And so we were coming off the those comics. And um, that's when, that's really tough to me, tactical challenges, being tactical with superheroes. Mm -hmm. They're very clever at outdoing everything you can think of. And so I think yep. that was when I was getting a little more of my, my, I don't know, my skills there. And then I took quite a long break from DMing and played for quite a long time and then after 4e i think i started i started coming back because i saw that 4e was thinking some of the ways that i was thinking mm -hmm. like being inspired by warcraft and stuff like that that kind of brought me back in i felt sort of welcome again to come back and be mechanical with the game rather than you know I, in some ways i think a little bit looked down on sometimes to play mm -hmm. really tactically um you know thinking that freeform improv is really the essence of things but mm -hmm. It's a big hobby. I think there's room for everybody. So it just took 4E for me to feel sort of welcome again. Absolutely. I've actually, I, so I found a lot of value in in your channel and uh, a guy I mentioned earlier, Luke Hart, because I got into D&D &D doing Theater of the Mind. The mm -hmm. first time I played, the guy didn't have a battle mat, didn't have minis or anything. We were just doing Theater of the Mind. And that's kind of how I ran my games initially. And then it was right after one of my friends got me interested in painting minis. <laughs> and I used to be a Warhammer 40k player, so I'd had a little bit of experience with that. But once I started painting minis and I was actually trying to be good at it, that's when I was like, <laughs> hey, I've got these minis, let's try tactical combat. And that's where I got interested in just learning all that stuff because I didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very different mindset. You know, it's it I think the key one of the keys to it is not seeing it as the opposite of role playing or being right. imaginative. You know, it doesn't take that away. It just gives gives it a, a structure to role play within visually. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's one of its biggest sort of stigmas 
that's that's very slow to go away is people see it as it's either tactical combat or role play. Right. And I think they just go together like peanut butter and jelly, but that's just how I see it. So uh, once once those two start coming together, I feel that's like, for me at least, that's where things get their most fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's like a lot of things in RPGs. It's the same way with like addition warring. You have to recognize that everything, all elements of the game have their place in the game. And if you have a game that's more heavy on one and not as heavy on the other, if that's what you're into, that's fine. I mean, like you've said, and I, I feel like I'm the same way. I like a balance game like a game that has a little bit of everything yeah and sometimes really theater of the mind can be absolutely beautiful too Mm -hmm. if you're in a more of a a mood to kind of lean back so to speak you know the visual tactical games are very leaning forward Mm -hmm. as far as like your overall intellectual posture and sometimes it's nice to be a little more like you know nick offerman style and you're kind of you know you got your elbows on your chair and you're more like waxing a little more that can be Mm -hmm. really fun too so yeah i think it's just everything has a bit of a season now you you've mentioned it a couple times uh uh, and this is just purely because it's it's interesting. Tell us a little bit about your time in, in video games and um, how that came well, about. Yeah, I started out as an artist. So uh, again, I stumbled into it. My plan was never to get involved with any of this crazy stuff. Um, but I was playing uh, Battle Arena Toshinden and Chrono Trigger and Warhawk on the PS1 and thinking this is pretty cool. Like, it seems like the technology is evolving a little bit, like catching up with Virtua Fighter, which had only been in the arcade until then. And so I was just kind of getting into that and really not knowing where I was going to go and doing these comics uh, called Megabot at the time. And it's about this kind of robot who's like a philosopher. And it was kind of a, a, a play on like a Lao Tzu type character. And my friend got involved in a video game studio and they're looking for a concept artist to do like a bunch of submarines. And he's just like, I know this weird guy who draws all these vehicles and robots and stuff. And so I just went in and actually I interviewed for that job, my first video game job, the day that the OJ verdict came out. So you can, <laughs> you, can you get a sense of timing. <laughs> So anyway, I just got into that. And then just because of luck, I was just around a lot of amazing people. Mm-hmm. And the amazing people showed me that there was a lot more to to video games than than I had imagined. Um, those people included uh, Adam Adamowicz, who went on to do Fallout. He was the concept artist for Fallout. Mm-hmm. Um, got to spend a little bit of professional time with Keith Baker, who wound up going on to do Eberron. And so many other people who were doing technical work in video games and writing in video games. And it just kind of chain reacted one job to the next and looking for that kind of, that one project that all video game developers are out there seeking you know that one where they get to kind of be themselves but they also get to work on something with some some legacy to it and so i worked all these kind of different jobs and wore all these hats in the video game industry um took a little break from it for a while and then when i returned just again by being fortunate and being around good teachers and stuff i got the chance to do um shinobi 3ds and got to be the lead on shinobi 3ds the lead artist gotcha and and that turned out to be an amazing experience. Got to work with the artists from Evangelion doing concept art and like, it just came together really well. The fans really liked it. I felt like super satisfied. And then sort of after that, I started feeling more relaxed because I felt like my journey had kind of made it. I kind of, if you know, if 13 year old me could see that I was creating Shinobi, that would just make my mind explode. So <laughs> Started kind of relaxing and wanting to get a little more into the, you know, the so-called executive side of it and be a little more of like a 
a leader mm-hmm. and, and did that for a while and then just sort of felt like, I don't know, this doesn't quite feel right. Went through a few jobs, wound up with Carbon Games and worked on their cool transforming robot game Airmec for a while. Got into some robot stuff and did a bunch of level design and writing and everything. And then just kind of felt like, I think I'm good. <laughs> I think this was a great journey. I think I'm going to go back to my tabletop roots and kind of kind of wander off into the sunset. So it didn't really have a, you know, a dramatic ending to it. I just mm-hmm. kind of, I felt complete after doing all that video game work. <laughs> gotcha. Now, Kind of your experience in uh, designing games, how did that, do you feel that informed your experience when it came to uh, making your own RPG? Absolutely. I mean, even though video games have a lot of staffing behind them because the budgets are great, Mm -hmm. you know, the general budget level of software is a lot higher than tabletop. So you do have a lot of people to help and to learn from and to riff off of. But despite that fact, I still felt that some of the best people I worked with were kind of jack of all trades types who could do a little bit of of coding to get things to work. They could do a little bit of texturing. They could do a little bit of modeling and a little bit of animation and get ideas to start to pop. And then all their far more talented staff members could start, you know, making that into bigger, better things. Mm -hmm. And and that sort of bootstrappy type behavior, I think to me is like, is really clutch. I mean, especially Runehammer is just me. It's, I'm a yep. one man company um, with, you know, collaborators and contributors. Mm-hmm. But I think that kind of, okay, today I need to do a bunch of technical publishy garbage. And tomorrow I need to draw motorcycles all day. And the day after that, I need to come up with a, you know, a good push mechanic for my fighters. You know, those, these are all really different things. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I learned a lot of that kind of do do the different pieces to get it into its minimum functional form. I really learned that skill working on video. So yeah, I think it translates directly. It's just video games are very complex and frustrating. Mm-hmm. So that's the big difference. I think tabletop is rewarding much faster. Um, gotcha. You know, video games, you are going to wait and you are going to be frustrated. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess that kind of naturally leads us to, to talking about the, the index card RPG. Um, what is the central kind of hook that you think sets index cards apart from any other system? (laughs) Well, I guess the reason that it wound up in the title of the the system and of the series of books itself Mm -hmm. is that to me, the index card is sort of a, it's, it's an avatar of doing stuff yourself. It's like Mm -hmm. a, to me, it just represents like not being sure what to do. And you have a Sharpie and an index card because every person on the planet almost has a Sharpie and an index card. Mm-hmm. And with just a little bit of rudimentary drawing and some imagination and a little bit of writing, I feel like somehow it just, even more so than like the notebook as a, as a great avatar of our hobby, I really feel the index card is the ultimate. So that's kind of where it, it came from is like, I wanted to, to get that scotch tape kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of bring it out of the closet in a lot of ways. I always felt that a lot of production in our hobby hasn't really pushed it that far forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's cool, like cool production is great, but I think this is why maybe some people really like the the old the old style of you know black and white books and sort of the mm-hmm. quote unquote OSR looking stuff. Yeah. Is it, it has that less produced feel, and so that's what I wanted to represent with mm-hmm. with index. That's why I named it after index cards. To me, it represented like what truly in my mind binds us together as like hobbyists is is not cool photoshop art and you know full color books but Mm -hmm. that kind of moment where you need to write the word mountain and draw a little triangle and slap it on the table and that's now your world map you know like (laughs) that moment to me is like really essential to the hobby and i wanted to sort of represent that and so index card it's it's a setting agnostic rpg correct yeah yeah what what are some of your favorite settings to to run in that system well i mean i love meat and potatoes fantasy 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think just about everybody has a soft spot for it. Um, and then we did quite a long period of doing like, I guess what you'd call Asimovian science fiction. So, you know, a very big universe science fiction. So with lots of trans-like travel and crazy species and, you know, your minimum amount of space is kind of a planet. <laughs> you know, you're always just worried about planets. You're not really worried about cities or towns. And we did quite a while of that. And I, I really enjoyed that, but I felt it just gets so titanic. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot like Asimov's work, you reach that kind of foundation point where you're talking about galactic civilizations and time travel and causality loops and like, whoa. Mm-hmm. So as a backlash from that, took the, you know, sort of the summer from spring until now, basically off and have just been a player. And then now that winter has kind of come around, sort of going now into where I think I'm going to be residing for at least a year or so here is back into cyberpunk land, mm-hmm. which is where I started. Um, so I'm actually kind of that's what I've been doing all over the blogosphere or the social media sphere is talking about coming back to cyberpunk and what it means and like how different it is to to GM and how the art style is more demanding and it, it's kind of in my mind still looking for its definitive system. Absolutely. I think Shadowrun is the closest thing we have, but mm-hmm. I think all the sort of 30D6 jokes have yep. kind of, you know, eroded some of that core. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're, we're still groping for the ultimate, in my mind, like cyberpunk tabletop book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it just feels contemporary too. I think it feels, it feels good to talk about cyberpunk right now. It feels kind of salient. So mm-hmm. that's really where I want to be. Um, yeah. But those of you know those who read Index Card RPG, they know that I really probably make my bread and butter bread and butter on just raw, good old fashioned like bone breaking fantasy. Um, I think it's really hard to jump into weirder genres without really getting that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I must say, you you've picked a great time to to kind of rediscover uh, cyberpunk because I mean, midway through uh, or kind of early 2020, uh, we've got that a uh, cyberpunk. 2077 from CD Projekt Red coming out. So cyberpunk is very much in vogue right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that'll, that'll give people the, the thing, the same thing that Red Dead gave Westerns. Yeah. You know, it doesn't necessarily just nail and completely encapsulate the genre, Mm -hmm. but it, I think it just gives people the, Oh, that one time kind of Mm -hmm. feeling that uh, maybe they didn't have before with Westerns. I know that the first Red Dead game did that for me. I freaking Mm -hmm. loved that game. Oh yeah. Um, And so if, if 2077 can live up to the Red Dead kind of tradition, then yeah, everybody's going to, going to (laughs) win on that front. It's just so produced. It's just kind of like, wow, they've like every little bolt and rivet in cyberpunk world has been rendered individually and like, whoa. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm interested to see how that gets received. Yep. And and they even brought in Keanu Reeves because God forbid we have a cyberpunk project that does not feature in some way Keanu Reeves. Yep. <laughs> you know, otherwise it's just like in Team America, you know, we yeah. need an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there's a, a famous problem with with cyberpunk games, uh, that being the issue of the Decker. I won't ask you to reveal your solution to this problem, but do you have one in mind for your, <laughs> yeah. your cyberpunk setting? I, I mean, I have the same solution in mind for decking as basically as I did for casters in Index Card RPG. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's despite the sort of somewhat offbeat magic book that I did, which I think a lot of people are just like, why did you even bother doing this? I think the original solution was far better, which it's just like, it all works on a roll. It's all in one little list. You're done. They're just, and all my spells are one line descriptions. And there isn't a separate game that is being played inside of a game. Now that's going to take a lot of detail away from breaking ice and getting through locks and hacking virtual space and all 
this cool stuff. But, you know, nobody wants to like sit in the back while Gandalf is looking for answers in the basement in Minas right. Tirith. Yeah. And likewise, you don't want to sit in the back while your Decker is like being lawnmower man. Yeah. So I, I think that'll be my solution is just it's all happening instantaneously mm -hmm. instead of being a secondary universe. And for all the people who are out there who are like fantasizing about like, you know, deck play that's inside the game. Sorry, but you're going to have to stay in the bus with the other children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, if you really want that stuff, Neuromancer's still out there. Just just go read it again. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can, you, you can, you can get the feeling that's fun from media that isn't making your, your homies kind of wait for you. Yeah. You know, and I think it's the same with wizard fantasy stuff too. You don't necessarily need to bring the entire wizard fantasy mm -hmm. to the table because that would mean like aging. Yeah. <laughs> and no one, no one wants to watch you age, even though it's core to the wizard myth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So hopefully this will all work out. I mean, so far like the the ultra simple magic solution uh at least for my readers has been well received and the idea that a spell should have its description fit on one line i think is is very well received especially for non-wizards <laughs> absolutely <laughs> they're like hey this is great <laughs> he just made a roll and did his thing and now it's my turn already awesome <laughs> Now, as I mentioned, I, I used to do a music podcast. I'm a huge music guy. So, of course, we have to talk about the Viking Death Squad. Yeah! <laughs> so, when it comes to making an RPG session out of the song War Pigs, was that something that you'd envisioned for a long time? Or was that something that one day you just heard War Pigs and went, I could make a session out of this. That, that's exactly what happened. Is I was just, I was Ozzy, you know, you're not always just listening to Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're like, like Ozzying out. You're like, yeah. you're freaking out about it. Like, uh, mm -hmm. there are certain bands that are like this. Like, you knew it was cool. You haven't listened to it for about five years. You come back and one night you have a few beers mm -hmm. and you're like, oh my God, Black Sabbath is so dope. <laughs> you know, like... They were so ahead of their time, you know, this kind of crap. And I had one of those moments and the words to War Pigs just like drilled a hole right into my like frontal cortex. I don't know why. And at the time I was signing up to run a game at uh, Absolute Tabletop convention in Tacoma. And that's when I just like you said, it was just like, this is describing a session. Yeah. Oh my God. I, 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 you know, I got my notebook out and I'm like frantically writing this down and it sort of just happened in a fugue after that moment. I had no plans. There was never, I really don't plan many things. I'm, I'm not that smart. <laughs> And honestly, I, I was very tickled to hear that that whole thing was inspired by War Pigs because that is honestly one of the songs that was the most transformative in my, really in my life as a music fan. I, I distinctly Sweet. remember the first time I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me too, I think it's like invented multiple genres all in yeah. one song. Like oh, it's yeah. just so colossal how futuristic Especially back then, it must have sounded it just mm -hmm. crazy. And for some reason, that one night, it just it got me again. Absolutely. And I, I really, I have to say, that session that you put together is awesome. And I would love to either play in it or run it someday. <laughs> Anything where there's metal and bass jumping and Viking dudes. Then yes. And dudettes. Then the, that's, yeah. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. As we're kind of kind of reaching the end of our time here, um, I do have to ask you a couple of selfish questions uh, because cool. I discovered your content while trying to put together a Dark Sun game, and so you're oh, awesome. Were the first uh, first ones that I watched. What were your experiences playing Dark Sun in in kind of the the days where it was? 
as popular as it ever was. Yeah. Well, I think like so many people, at least the way I perceive it, that play Darks on, there's a, a maybe a two week period where you and your friends who are going to play together are discovering Dark Sun. And you're all basically like crapping your pants because it's so cool and so different. And it just, oh my God, yeah. And the lack of metal and all the different you know nuances that make it neat. And then we kind of would get to the table and there's so many cool things that we're used to doing and having, they start creeping right on into Dark Sun, even though they're not supposed to. Right. You know, and like Dark Sun is, of course, so famous and so uh, has such a nice little niche in history because it breaks so many traditions in a wonderful way. Probably the lack of metal to me is one of the most difficult things to work with. That's absolutely just the way my imagination is like partially metal. Like Mm -hmm. I think in metal. So (laughs) that was really, so it just starts breaking down. And actually what we kind of wound up playing was more almost like a, like a dune RPG. Like, yeah, we're in the desert and there's like ships that kind of slide on sand and stuff. Okay. Yeah. That's dark sun. But the rest just starts instantly decaying mm-hmm. into whatever your table wants to create. Right. And in the, in the short time that, that we were able to really play it, it was dark sun for maybe like two sessions. And then it just starts going places. Cause this is what happens with, with the hobby. It just, you don't, you're not writing a novel, you're responding. And so it just starts evolving. And then before you know it, there's an oasis. And then, you know, the bug people are actually this and the, the three cream were kind of, they were tricksters and there was an illusion and they're androids and like, I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's why in my video, I'm, I'm a little bit got, you know, kind of, I got a little bit trolled about like, there's no dragons in, in dark sun, you know, dragons proper. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't be held responsible for this. Like I wanted a big badass black dragon in my opening scene of Dark Sun. So you're like right off the map right away. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is what's fun about Dark Sun. Really, I think a big part of it is just Brahms artwork. I, mm-hmm. I think it's very rare that we have seen an artist of his caliper return to RPGs in such an influential way. I think he was really unique in this way. We've had more classic artists, but he's just such an oddball whose oddballness was was made into the canon as he's creating the art. I think that's that was a very rare moment uh, in the hobby. I think that also sort of happened with Rifts a little bit. Like mm-hmm. art kind of created, helped to create the game. But like I was saying, I think just for me, the experience was, okay, well, that was Dark Sun for a second. And you know now it's kind of like John Carter and it's kind of like mm-hmm. Dune and, and oh, look, uh, or thank <laughs> you know, like, it's just why not there it is oh god it's saruman <laughs> who'd have thought you know wow but that's just kind of what happens with the chaos of the table and i think if you fight that chaos mm-hmm. it can feel like you're sort of taking something away from the game right so when that chaos comes to call you know whether it's dark sun or not it's kind of like okay this is unfolding mm-hmm. there are labradors on dark sun now wow <laughs> athos has a dog population <laughs> Turns out they're intelligent. <laughs> and this is something that you've mentioned, not just in Dark Sun, but in your, your videos kind of on, uh, on low fantasy settings. What's your advice for kind of starting out a game where you have to keep your players impoverished just to, to keep the flavor of the setting alive? Oh, wow. Well, I, I think it's important to, just like in real life poverty, mm-hmm. just celebrate the little special things that you have with these sort of impoverished players. So I think this is something that's a little off about Torchbearer. It almost seems like the GM is enjoying like giving their players the flu or something like that. You know, it's a little bit, a little cringy for me. Mm-hmm. So I would say like if you are doing like Hobbit type fantasy, like low, low fantasy where you're kind of amazed to get a sword. 
Yep. I, I think that there's just a lot of wordage that you can use as the GM, which is celebrating of small things, you know, like that little um, box of salt that Sam has. Yep. That's a perfect example of being rich as a, as a poor character. And then also I would say low fantasy, one of the keys is to avoid linear progression. Mm -hmm. So if you have linearly evolving characters and they have 56 hit points and this is supposed to be low fantasy, like it just starts feeling really weird. Like a bugbear jumps out and they're like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I think you can use, you know, like a lot like back in the AD&D days, you can use equipment to do progression and mm -hmm. equipment comes and goes and that, that can keep them low rather than just this, this ladder that they're climbing. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's a problem in every single low fantasy game once you're at about maybe five sessions. Yep. Because it's, I mean, even Frodo and Sam come back with all that badass gear. Mm -hmm. You know, even Frodo and Sam have that dope like Mordor armor set that they have at one point. That's got to be better than Hobbit armor. I mean, yeah. that's got to be cool shit. Absolutely. So at some point, it does have to get cooler. Mm -hmm. Or I, I think, you know, the whole like heroic villager thing is very hard to maintain. And another mm -hmm. great uh, sort of media reference on this front is the old Hercules TV show, which was brilliant because it's Hercules, who's like a demigod, but in a way it was like low fantasy. Yep. Because they sort of like went town to town and kind of there was like this, this guy who was like stealing turnips, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it was at that level, but somehow they made that work. And I still have yet to fully understand how that show was brilliant. But part of it is that Hercules and uh, Aeolus, they never really leveled up. Mm -hmm. They kind of just sometimes were cool and sometimes were down in the dumps and sometimes cool. And they were on a curved like wave line rather than mm -hmm. a ramp. And so I think if you can avoid that ramp, that's the number one step to, to keep low fantasy cool. All right. So, yeah, we're, we're running up against kind of the, the end of our time here. Uh, so I'm going to turn the rest of our time over to you uh, just to talk about anything that you have to promote, any kind of uh, up and coming content or anything like that that you want to point people towards. Uh, the floor is yours. Oh, wow. Well... I guess it isn't necessarily something I want to promote, but I want to share excitement about. Uh, it, it's hard to promote things that aren't done. But I have been on and off for about three years talking about cracking this kind of choose-your-own-adventure code. And um, so my, my novels have, have done good enough to to definitely be interesting to me as a publisher. But I just, I wanted to write a freaking choose your own adventure. And I must have written three dozen that I threw away in grumpy fits and just could not make it interesting, could not contribute to the genre. And like, oh, it's just been such a, a frustrating journey. But then over the course of the summer, coming back to cyberpunk, I don't know why. I don't have an explanation yet. I'm sure when I do, I'll do some kind of video about it. But that genre, for some reason, unlocked my imagination to start to really get it. And now I'm really quite a ways, almost a third of the way done with my first Choose Your Own Adventure book, um, which is called Folded Path is kind of my my label for Choose Your Own Adventure. And my first one, the title is Retune. And it's going to kind of be a little bit of a sidecar to the cyberpunk RPG offering I want to bring out next year. But at this point, making RPGs is really fun. It's just a matter of being patient and really minding the details and doing a damn good job so it lasts. Mm -hmm. But for me as a, as a person, the choose your own adventure thing is like something I've been dreaming of and trying to do for so damn long to think that I'm going to maybe have one to reveal to people is super duper exciting to me. So it isn't an RPG per se, but it's just, I read almost every single choose your own adventure and most of the fighting fantasy books mm -hmm. between 83 and 93. 
83. Like I read so many of them and then looking back thinking, you know, you didn't read all those and looking back to them, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that one. I remember that one. I remember that one. So I, I've always been a little bit of a secret super fan of Choose Your Own Adventure and just not had the skill or the, I don't know, the the luck to get one to work. And I finally have one working. So I, I hope everyone listening will be as excited as I am to to try this out. It's like just a, a series of tough choices. Every little block I'd like to think is a very tough choice for the reader. So I think it'll be really fun. Yeah, one of the one of the podcasts that I listen to, uh, Vintage RPG Podcast, and those guys are actually going to be on the show uh, later this month. Uh, they, they recently did an episode on the Endless Quest series. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and those are like, very grand sort of uh not grand what's the opposite of granular very like blocky mm-hmm. choose your own adventures those are the ones yep. with like the big character from from fifth edition on the front right yep yeah yeah like you are the fighter those <laughs> yeah. i have two of those yeah and you can read them in like 20 minutes mm-hmm. it's like really big font <laughs> but but they're kind of fun and i was just like did i just save Gontelgram? holy shit <laughs> I'm a to- i think i chose all the right stuff <laughs> Gotcha. Well, Hankerin, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you so much for your time tonight. This was a ton of fun. I love yeah. talking with you. I'd like to bring you on some sometime again. Absolutely. We, we got to catch up again. It was really fun. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Well, uh, Hankerin, do you have a message for the people uh, that you want to you want to send them out with? Oh man, uh, just just uh, don't don't believe what you hear. This this hobby belongs to us and nobody else. It is not a packageable commodity. We mm-hmm. we created ourselves at the grassroots level. So go out and do that thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Uh, next week, I am bringing on a uh, a friend of one of our former guests. Um, his name is Skeeter Green. And he is, according to Levi Combs of Planet X Games, the guru of horror RPGs. And I'm going to talk with him about what makes a good horror RPG. And he is going to help me make a monster that is going to someday terrorize my players in my Saturday game. I am looking forward to it. Uh, So until next time, I just want to leave you guys with this message. Oh, Lord, yeah. Dun, 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 dun.